necessary, but we're in the middle of a series or a conversation, like we like to call it, called Peace Has Come. And uh, we started last week looking at this series, and I told you a story last week of a Christmas uh, when I was in elementary school where I got sick on Christmas Day. Like, I threw up, and it just was a nightmare. It was awful. And I remember in the bathroom asking my parents this question, why would Jesus let me get sick on Christmas, on his birthday, right? Why would he let me get sick on his birthday? It didn't make sense to me. It just messed with me. And what I said last week is some of us in here, some of us in here are in the proverbial bathroom during this Christmas season. And we're asking the same question, but we're asking it about peace because we don't have peace in our life. We look around, we're like, how can people have peace? This world is messed up. There are things happening everywhere, and maybe even in my own world, there are things happening. It's messed up. I can't have peace. What are you talking about? We're kind of sick over this Christmas peace. What, where do we go from there? We said this last week. We said this kind of overarching series point. We said peace with myself and others starts with peace with God. Peace with myself and others starts with peace with God. We said this, that peace is not situational. It cannot be situational because situation will take us here, 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 here. Circumstances will go up and down everywhere. It is relational. Peace is relational, and that's why we're honing into this big point. Because peace with myself and others has to start with peace with God, and we looked at that last week. We said peace with God is kind of like this image, and we put this image up, kind of two separate cliffs. We said we are not at peace with God. We all start that way, that the chasm, the gap in between is our sin. It's much deeper. It's much wider than we could ever fathom. We are not at peace with God. We're born that way. So we're born into the nation of sin as sinners. We have this chasm in between us and relationship with God, and we cannot make peace with God. We personally cannot do anything. We are not good enough. There's nothing that we can achieve. There's no way that we can bridge the gap to God. Yet, even though we cannot bridge the gap to God, God said, I want to make peace with you through my son, Jesus. And the image turns to this. We said last week that Jesus is that bridge, that Jesus was sent to this earth. He was a man that lived and he lived a perfect life and taught about the kingdom of God. But his mission the whole time, mission the whole time was to go to the cross and die for each and every one of us. He said, if you believe in me, that bridge gets into place and you can have a relationship with God, but you also have purpose and meaning on this earth. That's the only way to have peace with God is through saying yes to Jesus. And then each and every day after that, we say, Jesus, I want you to lead me and I want to say yes to you every single day. That's how we live life and that's what peace with God is all about. And so we talked about peace with God. Today we're going to talk about peace with ourselves. And next week, we're going to talk about peace with others. So I would challenge you, be here next week. It's going to come kind of full circle as we run into Christmas time. But peace with ourselves, I think we lack. I think our culture, maybe, but people in general, we lack peace with ourselves. And there's a lot of different ways that I think we kind of struggle with this idea of peace with ourselves and lacking. I think one way is this. We lack peace with ourselves because we think about our regrets, we think about our mistakes, our past. Maybe we think about like who people say I am. Do I have purpose and meaning? I was talking to a guy uh, earlier and he said that maybe not even the negative stuff in life, but the pressures that's put on you. Like I have this lack of peace because I'm not fulfilling something that people kind of put into my life. So I don't have peace with myself, this peace here. But also I think that we lack peace with ourselves when we look at maybe sometimes our job 
or money or circumstances or maybe comfortability or where we are in life and we're like, we're just not there. It doesn't make sense. I don't have this peace. Where is it at? So there's two frames. Maybe it's mistakes, regrets, accomplishments, job, whatever it may be. There's just this, not this peace with ourselves and we see that it's elusive in our lives because anxiety rates are out of this earth. I saw some numbers. 18.1% of the population suffer from anxiety. That is 40.1 million adults in the country. 25% of children between 13 and 18 years old suffer with anxiety. Here's the thing. It's everywhere. There's worry everywhere, and our culture is trying to create it and define this understanding of how to make peace with ourselves or this inner peace. There's so many different ways, and oftentimes it will come out in feeling-based, emotion-based, you-do-you kind of ways, right? Kind of figure it out or try to make it work or try to create peace with yourselves. And we create this image, okay? We create this image that I think sometimes, sometimes is kind of a long, long dream of ours. And this is where we want to get with peace with ourselves. It's this image of a beach, that I have to create inside of me this peace with myself and it has to feel relaxing. It has to feel like a beach on a beach chair with iced tea. The sun's hitting me just right. Sand in my toes and I'm looking out into the ocean. When I get to that point, then I'll have peace with myself and it'll be all right. And here's the thing. And you know this if you've lived life for longer than a week, right? You know this, that there are peace wreckers everywhere. There are peace wreckers everywhere. There are people, situations, circumstances, conversations, whatever it may be, that wreck my peace. And I think it comes in two major ways. The first way is conversations. If you want to write that down, conversations. Whether it's in myself, within myself, or others that have conversations with me, right? We've been there where maybe the coach tells me that I'm worth nothing. Like you're not going to be good enough to achieve anything. Maybe it's the teacher that says you're useless. You're never going to amount to anything. Maybe it's the parent that told me uh, or didn't tell me that I'm loved. Or these internal conversations I have with I, myself, I put pressure on who I'm supposed to be or what I'm supposed to do, whether negative or positive. I had an interesting situation when I was in middle school. I was at a winter retreat having a blast, and it was like Saturday night of the retreat, and we were playing a game, me and some of my friends, and we were playing this game, and I don't remember the situation, necessarily the conversation that was taking place to what I said, but a girl next to me, based off of what I said, kind of was put aback by it. And she told me this, and I remember this to this day. She said, you're really mean for a pastor's kid. And I'm like, whoa, I've never heard that one before. I grew up as a pastor's kid. I've always been a pastor's kid. And she said that to me, and it put me aback. Because then the conversation started to roll into my mind. I was not at peace with this situation or myself because then I asked, am I supposed to be better? Am I supposed to live up to this title? What am I supposed to do? Am I not good enough? Am I not fulfilling this? Am I not treating people right? And that happens all the time to each and every one of us. I've gotten past it, right? I'm not bitter, right? But have we gotten past it? But each and every one of us have conversations and they just keep replaying. Whether it's conversations we flood into our own mind or conversations that we have with others. We're like, we're not at peace with ourselves, but also, outside of conversations, circumstances. Circumstances, right? Circumstances pop up all the time. That's why peace can't be situational, because circumstances can wreck us, right? The medical diagnosis we didn't see coming, and it's just the tension inside of us of, what do we do with this, right? Work laid me off, 
right? I don't know what to do with this. My kids are going crazy. What do we do with this? And there's just no peace internally. Where in the world am I? And what happens is this, this picture of what peace with myself is supposed to be like, this tranquil, lack of disturbance beach that I get to sit on the beach chair and drink iced tea and the sand in the toes, that's what it's supposed to be and that's where I'm supposed to get very quickly when we understand and see life, we see that the picture becomes the beach to this. And that's what peace with myself feels like most of the time. We're like, there is no peace. It's just cars honking, people yelling, lights. There's this craziness everywhere. And that's often what we live in. We're like, how can we have peace with ourselves if that's what we're running into day in and day out? And like I said, we have a world and a culture that says, go off of your feelings, go off of what your emotions are, go off of what you think you should do and just run with it. And that's how you'll find peace. That's how you'll find hope. That's how you'll find life. And oftentimes we're in the mix of this and we're like, how does that work? What does that look like? I don't know what to do because it's just craziness. And I guess this is just what it is. We'll never get to the beach. Right? And that's where we end up, and that's where the questions come in. It's interesting, as I was studying, I was looking up kind of peace with yourself, where I typed in peace with yourself theology just to see what Google would bring, right? Google, the ultimate theology professor, right? And the first couple pages I got were eight steps to peace with yourself, ten steps to inner peace. And we're trying to fix this problem because we all have this going on. And so Paul, we're going to look at a passage, we're going to look at a passage where he writes to a church uh, in Philippi, okay, uh, the letter to the Philippians. And he says this in uh, Philippians 4, verse 6, he says, do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. And you read this and you're like, what in the world is he writing about? There ain't no way. If you have a cell phone, right, you're connected all the time. We're connected all the time. It's like, how in the world are we going to be at peace? There's things always happening. We're always flooded with news. How can he write this? He doesn't understand what's going on. And peace with ourselves can seem like a far-off dream that we'll never get there. We'll never land on the beach. And I think the beach is an inaccurate view of what it means to have peace with ourselves. Maybe some would say inner peace. This is what I'd have you write down. This is kind of where we're going today with the, the sermon. Peace with God leads to the peace of God, which allows peace with myself. Peace with God leads to the peace of God, which leads or allows peace with myself. That's where we're going to lean into. He tells us not to be anxious, and I know because I ask the same question, how in the world is that possible? I go day in and day out, you know, work, kids, you got this problem, this relationship, you're trying to figure all this out. How is he leading us into this to say, not, don't be anxious? And we're going to read through the whole passage. So if you want to turn to Philippians 4, 4 through 9, we're going to see the context of what he is diving into, what he means by having the peace of God. So Philippians 4, 4 through 9, it'll be on the screen also. Let me give you some context, okay? Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to an actual church, an actual group of people, a community of people that are in Philippi. Philippi is a Roman colony uh, of Macedonia. Okay, what's interesting about this colony is that the population was mostly made up of former Roman soldiers. They're very, very, very committed to the Roman government, to what they did for a living, and they lived here kind of after their service. So when Paul came in and the church was there, they were promoting Jesus as king, right? We would all agree with that. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And it uh, came face to face with a lot of opposition because in Philippi, Caesar is king. 
because he is ruler over Rome. And so right now, there is lots of persecution. If you were to go back in time and kind of end this letter, Paul is writing into a church that is facing a lot of persecution. We're talking about Jesus' followers. Jesus isn't king. Caesar is king. What's interesting is they're not only facing persecution, but Paul is sitting in prison writing this letter to them. Yeah, it's just a fascinating understanding of context because when you read this, when you read this, it'll open your eyes to what they're walking through and what Paul's leading us into. Or Philippians 4, 4 through 9. It's what he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Here's the thing, Paul, before we get into kind of some of the points that he makes in this passage, Paul is not writing 10 steps to inner peace, 10 or eight steps to peace with yourself. He's not writing a booklet or a checklist. What he's writing into is a lifestyle. He says, this is a lifestyle. And I want you to understand that. It's a lifestyle of following Jesus, but it's a lifestyle of peace with yourself. And he starts with this. In verse 4, he says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. This is what I want you to write down. Worship instead of worry. Worship instead of worry. That's what he's leaning into. Like I said, Paul is in prison. And Paul literally has two options. One is this, that he gets out of prison eventually, and he goes on to helping churches, encouraging churches, planting churches, and he will suffer while doing that and be persecuted while doing that. It's just a part of the gig that he had. The second option is this. He's executed in prison and he's dead, right? I don't know, but if I was sitting in prison and I was in Paul's place, I'd be pretty worried and anxious about life because you just don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's taking place. When you look at the church, they're being persecuted, right? There's a lot of reason to be worried and there's a lot of reason for them to be anxious, a lot of reason for them to be stressed out because of what is taking place around them. And it's interesting, Paul says, rejoice, rejoice. In everything, rejoice. Worship. Praise God. That's where your response should be. And I think what he's saying is this, worship is the antidote to worry. Worship is the antidote to worry. We got we to gotta start somewhere to understand what that means. And you, if you've been in church or heard a sermon before, you've probably heard this phrase of worship is not just an hour on Sunday morning, right? If you've heard that, if you've been in a sermon before, you've probably heard that. But we have to start there. Because I think sometimes in our culture, it's like we come, we'll sit, and this is worship service, and we go on with life, right? And not to anybody's faults or anything of that nature. But Paul writes into this, and he says, no, no, worship is a lifestyle, he writes into that in a letter to the church in Rome. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. J.D. Greer says it like this, we will worship whatever we think is essential for a good life. What we find worth in is what we will worship. 
And after J.D. Greer, he, he writes this down and he asks these two questions. He says this, what is the thing I am most worried about losing? The first question. And then the second is this, what is the thing I am most worried about not attaining? Because when you answer those questions, more times than not, that is what you're pouring your worship into, is the answer to those two questions. What you think will lead you to a good life, what you think will bring you worth, what you think life will kind of lean into, that's what I'm going to worship. That's where I'm going to go. It's interesting, as those things lead you into worship, Paul points out, he says, no, 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 this is where I want you to lean into. As we go back to the passage in Romans 12, he says, therefore... It says, therefore, based off of the first 11 chapters, the first portion of what I wrote you, that you went from being a sinner to being saved in Jesus, that not only, Gen- or not only Jews but Gentiles have this relationship with God now. You need to understand, therefore, based off of all of that and what I've written to you, I urge you that I plead with you, please, 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 please understand this, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Oftentimes, we'll kind of skip around that. I think he wants us to sit upon what God's done for us, the mercy and the grace and the love that he's given us. He's like, because of that, this is where we're going to lean into. Offer your bodies as living sacrifice. I heard someone uh, put it this way when he talks about living sacrifice, that we re-up every day. We kind of re-up every day. We wake up, we say, I'm going to put myself on the altar. I'm going to give myself to God. It's a living sacrifice. That's where I'm going to lean into, not, in res- or not for my salvation, but in response to it. And then he says, true and proper worship. That worship is a lifestyle of laying our life down, and it's the logical response to what Jesus has done for us. It's the response. Our whole life is that. And this is how I would define worship. Worship is a lifestyle of laying our life down in response to Jesus' work. Worship the lifestyle of laying our life down in response to Jesus' work. Here's the thing. When I look at that and I see what Paul is writing and how he's speaking into this peace of God and peace with myself, okay, we need to worship instead of worry. Worship, worship equals responding to God's work. And it leads me to have peace with God, but also leads me to the peace of God, right? It leads me to understand who he is and what he's done for me. And I can sit in that, and I not only can worship by praising and singing and giving thanks, but I can worship with my life, how I interact with people, what I do for a job and how I work, my work ethic, and how I treat others. I worship with my life in response to who God is and his work and what he's done for me through Jesus. Worry, on the other hand, worry is a response to my work because I'm never sure if I'm good enough. I'm never sure if I've done enough. So I'm just going to be constantly worried, constantly worried. Have I achieved it? Have I accomplished it? I don't know if I've gotten to the level, and we're trying to create the bridge. We're trying to create the bridge and trying to base our, muster up these feelings to get to that point. Worship brings peace. Worry deters from peace. And worship brings peace because we understand that Jesus laid down his life so that we could have peace with God and then experience the peace of God as we go in step from there. Psalm 100 lays it out like this. I love how this is written. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. 
Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. I would ask this question. What if my life became a worship session? What if my life became a worship, worship session? Not just on Sunday mornings for an hour. Like, this is great. Dave and the team do amazing. They lead us in singing and praising, like, vocally who God is and what he is about. But what if after that I went home and my life was worship with how I treated my spouse and my kids? What if I went into work and I said, my work ethic and how I work and my honesty is going to be based off of worshiping God and so that he gets the glory? What if how I treat my coworkers and my neighbors, that was worship to God, that my whole life was kind of fixed around making God glorified through how I live, right? We can worship God with praise and with singing and with instruments, right? Worship music on Spotify or that CD you have. We need to do that. It's a reminder of who God is through uh, vocally and through instrumentally, but we also, through our journal, through prayer, through interaction, through community. That's also how we can worship God. And I think that's what he's saying, that each and every day we worship, we rejoice, we praise with our life. Worship is the antidote to worry. So the first thing is this, worship instead of worry. The second thing is found in verse five. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. I would have you write this down. Freedom to trust. Freedom to trust. This word gentleness so gentleness, uh, as I was thinking of it initially, right, I thought of soft puppies and kittens, right, gentleness or like young babies, right, gentleness, like you got a nice blanket or like your whatever it may be, and what's written in the translation of this word, okay, what it's translated is kind of this patience, and ultimately as you flesh that out in different commentaries, they would say that there's this kind of freedom or this free to let go, this gentleness of my anxieties and worries, this freedom to let go of my, uh, my anxieties and worries. And I think in Proverbs 3, it's written pretty well. Five through six, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. It's this freedom to let go and trust in who God is. I can have a gentleness about not just my life, but my anxieties, my worries, what I struggle with, whatever it may be, to allow him to lead me. I thought of it like this. Um, It's not a perfect illustration, so bear with me. But when I was in ninth grade, I moved here to Ohio, and all uh, the the ninth graders or all the high schoolers were like, Cedar Point, right? Cedar, you got to go to Cedar Point. You haven't been to Cedar Point yet? What are you doing? You're missing out. And so me and my family this summer, after my freshman year, we got a pass to Cedar Point. And I went there, and we were trying all the roller coasters, okay? because that's what you go for. I went on, I think it's the Millennium Force. I think that's what it's called, right? One of the big tall ones. And we got in line. It was like some, you know, hour and a half, two hour wait that you could be doing other things, but you're waiting for a roller coaster for three minutes. It was awesome. But I got on the ride, okay? And I'm not a huge roller coaster guy, but I'll do it. And I remember I got in there, they locked me in. You start going up the hill, And it's just kind of frightening because you see the lake on one side or the other and you see the rest of the park on the other and you're just going up. You hit the crest and then you start coming down. I remember the first time I rode that, I'm like freaking out. And I'm gripping onto the bar and I am losing it. I'm losing it because I, I have no control. I'm freaking out. I'm trying to maintain, you know, composure, whatever it may be. And I hold onto the bar, okay? I'm gripping and I start to cramp. 
Like everything, my body's starting to cramp because I'm just gripping onto it so hard because I'm so frightened of the hills and all that stuff. Okay, so I get done with it. And I'm like, huh, never again. We go back later that summer. And my family's like, we're gonna go. And I'm, okay, we're going. I get onto the ride and I decided this time, this time I'm not gonna grip onto the bar, but I'm going to raise my hands. We're just gonna see what happens, right? We're just to see if it's better or not. So we get up the hill and we start going down and I throw my hands up and it was the best ride ever. I had the most fun on a roller coaster I had ever had because I kind of just had this like, okay, I'm just going to let go of the bar and let go of what I can't control and I'm just going to go with it. And I think at some level what Paul is writing here, what he's leaning into here is life is kind of like a roller coaster. You just have no idea where it's going to take you. It's jolting this way, this way, up and down and over and everywhere. And oftentimes we want to latch onto that bar, death grip. And there's no way that we're going to be able to control the roller coaster. There's no way. It's like you can't control it. It just is going to happen. And, and I think what he's saying in this gentleness, this gentleness of anxieties and worries, and we kind of let go, we say, God, we trust you. Even when the roller coaster throws me this way or that way, I trust you and I'm going to lean into you and it gives me a freedom to live my life trusting in him and who he is. Paul continues in this chapter, continues in this chapter uh, in verses 10 through 13. And he writes this, and I think it gives a picture of what it means to have this freedom to trust. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. He's writing to the church still. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to, be, to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I can be content in all of this through him who gives me strength. That Paul, as he writes this, he's sitting in prison. He's like, I've learned what it means to be content when I have a little bit and when I have a lot. When I'm in comfortability, when I'm not in comfortability. When it's persecution or I'm around friends, I've learned to be content. And I think that starts with learning to trust no matter where the roller coaster of life takes you. He's like, I've learned to have this gentleness of my life and to let go and and allow God to lead me as I follow after him. It was interesting, as you lean into this freedom to trust, it leads to this contentment that Paul's talking about that I think leads to peace because we looked at the biblical definition of peace and it means completeness and contentment. That he's like, I'm willing no matter what the situation is is I have this freedom to trust which allows the peace of God to reign inside of me. Now, now, doesn't mean that everything's going to be great and awesome and amazing, right? The roller coaster will still jerk us around sometimes, but allowing God to lead us and allowing to trust him no matter what the situation is, we relieve ourselves of the worries and the anxieties that are built in us of maybe our past, our situation, the job I have, I didn't achieve this, I didn't achieve that. So that's worship instead of worry, the freedom to trust. And then I would say this in verse 6. Paul continues, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Present your prayers is what I would write down. Nothing fancy there. Present your prayer. He goes through this and he starts with, Do not be anxious about anything. And if you're like me, I am anxious about everything, right? 
And, and anything from like house repairs, the car's not working, to we have to get to this, the schedule uh, is, you know, the son, is he okay? He's a year old, he's almost starting to walk and he's putting things in his mouth or we're freaking out about everything, right? And Paul's like, everything, don't be anxious about it. Not about anything, whether it's car, whether it's relationships, whether it's kids, whether it's dishwasher, anything silly, don't be anxious about it all. But here's what's key. Paul does not leave us in the dark. He doesn't just say that and kind of leave it to be and make us guess what does he mean. He says, but, but in every situation, whether small or big, inconsequential or significant, right? It's not a 10 steps. He says, but by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. He says three things. He says one prayer. He says you need to have a conversation with God. Run to God. Run to his presence. Have that conversation petition. He says, run to God. Ask for what you need. Be specific about it. What's your desire? What are you walking through? Petition it, but don't forget to be thankful. I think oftentimes we can, we can move past that. It's like, God, help. God, help. God, help. And he says, with thanksgiving. Address God with thanksgiving. Thank you so much for who you are and all that you've done for me. You could go for hours just sitting on thanksgiving. He says, don't forget about that. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18 say this. Paul's writing this to another church. It's kind of, he has similar language. He's directing them similarly. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. He's like, go to God in prayer. Go in conversation. It made me think of when I was a freshman, uh, I, I had a situation happen to me that was uh, pretty unjust and unfair that someone else did to me when I was in high school, and uh, it kind of left me unsettled and not at peace. And so the next day at school, it happened in the school building, next day at school, you know, my fear of who's going to find out, they're going to make fun of me, whatever it may be, I was just not at peace. And I didn't, dis- I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell anybody what had taken place, I didn't tell my parents, didn't tell my family, didn't tell those who were close to me because I was fearful. I was just not at peace. I was embarrassed, whatever it may be. I remember a year later, my dad walked into my room and still, like a year later, still not at peace at what had taken place. He walked in my room, he's saying a night or, you know, telling me something. He said, are you okay? And I said, I'm not. I'm not okay. And I told him what had taken place and we sat down and had this conversation for like an hour or so. And we had this conversation, and we sat down, and my dad did not change anything that took place. There's no circumstance. He didn't walk into school next day and change anything. But rather, he had this conversation, and he sat down, and he related to me. And he comforted me, and he encouraged me as I walked to understand how to have peace in the midst of what had happened. Here's the thing that I think Paul is leaning into here. He's saying that God is not necessarily going to change your circumstances. He's not going to change your situation all the time. He might not change the people that you are around yet he desires to have that conversation with you. That is key. Because we sometimes will run and we're like, why is it not figuring itself out? Why is this not happening? What's not taking place? And what he desires most is this conversation. He wants you to run to him as your father. Not just your feelings, your father. He wants you to run and have this conversation no matter what is taking place. And presenting your prayers will guide you to peace may not fix the situation. It may not make everything right. It will guide you into peace. When you are in the New York City crazy, right, the peace of God will be present. We see worship instead of worry, freedom to trust, present your prayers, and then we get to kind of the big passage 
where we see in verse 7, in the peace of God which transcends all understanding, okay, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Because of all this, God's peace guards. God's peace guards. It's like all of this I have written and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts. It's interesting to me because he talks about, he talks about kind of this idea of guarding. This idea of guarding is this military idea. This military idea uh, of someone guarding someone or something. And there's a pastor who's down south. His name is Russell Moore, and he states peace like this, and it'll bring about a full image. It says, but true peace doesn't leave us alone as though we were orphans. Christful peace prompts us to struggle, to scream out for deliverance, to be nailed down in execution. Only in that kind of disturbance do we find the peace that passes all understanding. Paul, the peace that Paul is talking about is not this tranquil, lack of disturbance peace. It's this peace of intensity. It's this peace in the disturbance and the disruption in the wreckage of life. That's what he's talking about. There's this peace that is not just the beach, but in New York City. Where do you find this peace of God in the midst of it all? Like I said, this peace that he's talking about that guards our hearts. It guards the hearts and mind, and it's beyond our understanding. We cannot understand it. I think one reason we can't understand it is because we only see the cars and the people and the lights and the craziness happening. We're like, how is this even possible? He uses this military idea. And when he said that or when I was reading that, this idea of guards popped into my mind and this picture came to be uh, of Buckingham Palace where there's guards that stand out in front of it. And basically for the queen, her family, and Buckingham Palace in general, there's guards that stand out in front, and they have these rituals, they have these ways of organizing themselves, they have the changing of the guard, things of that nature, so that at all times, whether it's just two of them or four of them, there are guards standing in front of the palace. They're always there. They're always ready to guard. I think this is the image that God wants us to get. That he's not going to fix our circumstances necessarily. He's not going to take us to a beach on a secluded island with iced tea. He says, I'm there to guard. I'm there to guard. And the peace that I bring is going to guard your hearts. What do you mean it's going to guard your hearts? He means this. He keeps us from losing heart during the battle. We're all going to face battles. We're all going to face battles. He says, my peace is going to keep from you losing heart because here's the thing. Jesus won. Your king won. He rose again, and he defeated death, and he defeated sin and Satan. He won, but it also keeps our minds captivated on Christ. Look to our king. He's like, I want your heart. I don't want you to lose heart in the battle, but I also want your mind to always be captivated on Christ, to always look to the king and see where the mission and the vision is and keep going. That's the peace of God. That's where it lands. And this peace of God is not a feeling that I muster up. It's just not. It's a lifestyle that I pour into. It's a lifestyle I pour into, and we see the peace of God, which we cannot understand or come to know in in full, that we understand as we experience and as we live out this lifestyle. Peace that moves past circumstances and conversations. But how in the world do I take the next step in this peace? How in the world do I take the next step to have peace with myself, inner peace, this peace of God? What does that look like? And I think there's two things. There's two things. If you're like daily, I, I want to hone into something, what does that look like? The first thing is this. First thing is this. In verse 8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, 
whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. The word meditate comes to mind. Okay, and here's the thing. When I first was introduced to this word, I thought of yoga, you know, and I thought of like getting your mind clear and all that stuff. Like, but biblical meditation is much more and much different than that. And I think that's what Paul is alluding to. And for some of us in this room, for some of us in this room, it starts with understanding and coming to a point of what Jesus has done for us to have peace with God. We all have to start there to have the peace of God in our life. And for some of us, we have to get to that point this morning. But for others of us, for others of us, we're like, I just don't have peace with myself. I have the peace with God, I understand that, but peace with myself, it doesn't make sense. And there's a quote by Matt, Matt Smetzertz, and he writes on Tim Keller. He says this, Biblical meditation rather is filling the mind with Scripture and then loading the heart to use John Owen's phrase with it until it affects not only the emotions but the entire life. I think Paul is saying, think about such things, whatever is lovely and true and admirable and right, that is Jesus. That is who Jesus is. That's what he's about. Think about such things. Sit in it. Meditate in it. I was thinking about it. I played football when I was in high school, and they gave us a playbook in the summer. And literally, once we got the playbook, it was our job to walk through it and to read it and to go through it. We had to memorize the plays, we had to figure out the plays, we had to know the steps, we had to know who was doing what so that the plays were to be uh, actually played out correctly. And I would sit there for hours, and whether you're in arts, bands, whether you're doing drama, you have to sit there and meditate on your stuff. You have to know your stuff to be able to play it out accurately. What Paul is saying here is meditate on Scripture. Meditate on who Jesus is. Sit on it. When you read scripture, don't just read it, but sit on the truth in it. Grasp it so that it goes and it becomes, not only affects the emotions, but our entire life is affected by it. This is something that I think is a lost art and something that I don't think we always do and always understand and always come to the point of like, this is uh, kind of where Paul is leaning us into or where God wants us to be, but meditating on his word and letting them not just sink in knowledge-wise and saying, I read this, I read this, but it fills into the heart and who we are, and it changes how we live day to day. Because the second thing goes in line with that. I write this down, practice, practice. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Verse 9, practice comes second or comes right after that on a daily basis. I think what we meditate on matters, because we'll meditate on our phones Right? We'll intake a lot of stuff on our phones, on the computer, on YouTube, on TV. Like We'll sit there, and what we're doing is we're taking in that information. I'm not against it. Right? I told you I watched a Christmas movie yesterday. I got a phone, all that good stuff. Right? I'm not against it, but we'll spend more time doing that. And what we meditate on does matter for not only our thought process, but where our direction of life, what we believe in, things of that nature. And so that's why it's like meditate, meditate, but you have to put it into practice. It would be very silly for me as a football player to meditate, sink into the plays, understand the plays, be the most knowledgeable guy on the field, and never practice it, and eventually never play it. It'd be dumb. It'd be worthless. It'd be useless. Right? If someone in drama or in the arts or in bands, they're like, I know it all, 
but I'm not going to practice it, right? I just know it kind of on paper. And he's like, every single day, put this into play. Walk every day. Practice this every day. Whatever is lovely, admirable. And he goes on in this verse, and he says, whatever you heard from me, seen in me, learned or received from me, I'm following Jesus. Follow me as I follow Jesus. Put that into practice. This is not just a Sunday coming to service, but what you read in Scripture and meditate on, put that into practice, whether it's forgiving someone showing grace and mercy, whatever it's the peace of God that we're talking about today. He says, put that into practice. I found it interesting as I was studying this, but also other things. Uh, someone would term discipleship or following Jesus in kind of these three ways, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. Being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, doing what Jesus did. That is putting the truths into practice. Follow my example as I follow Jesus. We're running into January. We're going to do a 90-day series. Not 90 Sundays, but uh, like over a span of 90 days. That'd be a long series. Holy cow, right? That'd be nuts. But a 90-day series, we're going to talk about the spiritual practices of uh, following Jesus. What does that look like? I think a lot of that will flesh out. A lot of that will flesh out. How do we do this day in and day out? What is Jesus stating? What are the things that he wants us to put into play and practice? What are disciplines in our life? Here's the thing. Here's the thing. For some of us, we sit there in peace with myself. It's not present right now. We're like, I'm, it's not present because of external things, internal things, conversations, circumstances. And for some of us, it doesn't start with peace with myself. It starts with the peace with God. That's where it needs to start. That that bridge is not there. It's just an empty chasm. It's my sin deeper and wider than I could ever imagine. And I'm trying and I'm trying and I'm worried and I don't know and I'm not sure if I'm going to get there. And that's why I would say today, today is the day that you should put your faith into Jesus and say yes to Jesus. That's where it starts, to having peace with God and experiencing the peace of God in your life. And you, whether, whether you've been in church for a long time or just a little bit, maybe it's your first Sunday, it starts by saying yes to Jesus. But for others of us, for others of us, peace with myself is far off dream also. It doesn't make sense. There's anxiety, there's worry. It's shocking. It's like, how are we gonna get there? I would say it's a lifestyle, not a step program. It's a lifestyle. It's not these next uh, checklist items that I have to get through. Lifestyle is saying, I want to worship. I want to pray. I'm going to trust. And in the midst of that, I cannot understand, but the peace of God is present. And that's where we walk from here on out. Why don't we pray as we finish?